0: You are listening to a Mint production.
1: So um, it seems to me that about ten percent, ten to twelve percent, one eighth of the country, or one tenth, depending on what numbers you use, uh, is really the economic engine of the nation. Really, and one could argue that there is even a more refined uh, uh, kind of segment, which I call India One Alpha. So these are the people mm. who buy these cultural products like Starbucks, like for example, or Netflix, yeah. or iPhones, etc. Uh, et right? Or consume right. all of right. these uh, like D2C brands. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. So that's the, you define it in the report as a top 5% of the 110 million, yes?
1: No, it's, I would say about top one third of the, I would say 110 million.
0: So that's so about, about 30 million. 30 million, uh, 30 million about 30 million, folks. exactly. Oh, okay. 30 million. Hello and welcome. My name is Sruti I'm a Delhi-based journalist and editor-in-chief of Mint. Together with my colleagues at HD Smartcast, I'm launching a new podcast called The Sketch. The idea is to have conversations with my guests that will help us get to know them a little better. So I'll speak to business leaders, not only about the performance of their business, but also their convictions, their method, their influences, and so on. If we managed to get you to listen till the end, we would have painted in your minds a sketch. The digital economy in India is a fascinating beast. It has the world's attention because it's a massive consumer market and has nearly 700 million mobile phone users. In recent years, data has become cheap and reliable access to data quite universal. All this has meant a scrum of global companies to India and investments into Indian startups. But is this digital gold rush somewhat misunderstood? My guest today is a writer and venture capitalist who has been working to understand India's digital economy deeply. He is someone whose tweets and writing I follow and has emerged as that rare VC who spends time in chronicling the world he engages with. Sajit Pai is a director at Bloom Ventures and co-author of a new report called the Indus Valley Annual Report. I hope to talk to him today about his work, The Lay of the Internet Landscape in India and Common Misconceptions. Sajit, thanks for joining us and welcome to The Sketch. How long did it take you to put this together?
1: Hey, thanks, Rititit. It's a pleasure to be here and be doing this. Yeah, it took, I think, us, Amal and me. Amal is my co-author, also my colleague. I think we started working on it November, kind of structuring the report. Uh, Some of the data was being collected from June, July itself, actually. Uh, But November was when he really started. But uh, the last three weeks, uh, we largely worked on the report and uh, perhaps uh, a bit more time than we anticipated uh, but hopefully it won't be so long the next time yeah,
0: yeah. this is the uh, i think the uh, the equivalent report in the us uh, you know the famous mary maker report uh, comes out um, did you did you do this exercise because you felt the lack of something of that sort in india and you decided this is a problem i'm facing might as well solve it myself
1: so it's a great question. Uh, yeah, lots of comparisons to the MaryMaker report. Um, uh, I would say, yes, uh, I did feel barring one year, I think it was 2017, where MaryMaker devoted about 30, 40 slides to the Beaker report. There's been very little coverage of India, and which, which is a shame because India is easily amongst the most exciting startup ecosystems in the world. We didn't see this gap. And we also felt that the story needed to be told. So Mm -hmm. I would actually concur with you that you're right. I think uh, in some ways I felt that the story was not being told. And uh, as startup founders do, which is that they feel a problem and they set out to solve it themselves. Sometimes you end up doing that here as well on the other side. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um not the startup founders it it reminds me of this uh one of my favorite uh, viral clips from the world of entertainment, so there is a speech that Reese with a spoon gives. Um, And she talks about when she wanted to play, uh, you know, important roles. There were no scripts with significant female leads, Uh, you know. And then she talks about how she and a friend of hers got into, you know, reading books, reading scripts. They set up a production company. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the first one they picked was Gone Girl, uh, you know, worldwide (laughs) blockbuster. And they went on to do several such. So, you know, and in that speech, she emphasizes this part that, You know, the world as it is will often tell you that you know, there is no uh, problem. F- it is what it is, and you can't solve it. But if you, you know, try to solve um, something, sometimes there is phenomenal success to be had. Um, it's a very inspiring speech. Uh, you know, I would encourage our uh, uh, listeners to look it up sometime. Yeah. Um, but to come back to the report at hand, uh, uh, Sajid, you know, you've been a chronicler of this space for a while. You look at a lot of. Uh, I mean, I you know know that you look at a lot of interesting data points all the time. So. This year, when you were working on this report, what are, say, the top three things that leapt out at you? Yeah.
1: So, I've been observing the startup ecosystem since, I think, 15, 16. though at that point, I wasn't working at Bloom or any VC. Huh? But since 18, very formally studying it like a student. And this year, uh, to in regards to your question, the three things that kind of leapt at me, um, I think the first... Uh, is really, I think, the sharp inequality at play. Uh, India has always been unequal, like it's not a surprise to anyone. But uh, when we actually looked at the data, and I think it's there in, I think, uh, slide 19, uh, yeah, uh, where we're actually looking at, for example, how the top quintile and uh, the bottom quintile have diverged. uh, And the bottom quintile, for example, Uh, have kind of dropped in income by about 53%. And it's a really sharp drop. But at the top quintile, has actually done very well. And they've had like a 40% rise in income, actually. So what we're really seeing is sort of a a kind of a sudden jump in inequality. People talk about the K-curve, etc. And uh, uh, that's sort of what's happening. So that that surprised me. The, the, The sheer intensity of that surprised me. Uh, in a way, what's happened is uh, we, people like us, kind of live in Zoom land and in Zoom land, the Wi-Fi is good, Wi-Fi is cheap, uh, you know, you don't have to travel, we're saving money from traveling, etc. Whereas the poor, the poor inhabit real life and where, for example, prices are going up or transport are going up, you know, so uh, you actually have the economy shut, which means they can't like open up physical shops, etc. So. So sort of not surprised by that, but the, the sheer dramatic uh, kind of uh, portraits that uh, the, the study threw up was uh, quite revealing. The second one um, is actually uh, our very shiny public digital infra. Mm. We've seen glimpses of that in you know uh, Aadhaar, uh, DigiLocker, UPI. Now there's a bunch of more acronym soups you know yeah. like uh, there's slash ondc there's uhi all of that coming and you know the, the sense i got was uh, well india's infrastructure public infrastructure physical infrastructure as we call it is not as shiny as china's but our public digital infra is every bit shinier spankier newer than uh the world, than than anyone um, brazil has something similar called pix for their payments but india what you're seeing is really not just one element the, the entire Infrastructure that's been put together, you know, it's it's not something that gets discussed all the time, but uh, it's, it's it's incredible. Uh, I would say on par with the space industry that's kind of come up. Yeah, and um, the third one—a very long answer to your uh, short question. No, 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 um, go on, go on. yeah. Uh, third one is actually um, uh, crypto and a specific aspect of crypto, which is that. Um, the policy yo-yos, um, or at least uh, I won't even call it blow-hot, blow-cold because it's not been blow-hot at all. It's yeah. blow-cold and neutrality. And what it has led to is, I think, in crypto, the nature of the industry that it's a, it's fundamentally a global industry from DECO. You can't you can't put barriers, countrywide barriers. So crypto founders, uh, for example, and the sheer talent uh, kind of migration to Dubai, some of them from Singapore, but especially Dubai. Where the founders are stationed. That uh, took me by surprise, and I think uh, it's a little bit of a warning sign there that uh, we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, uh, you know, uh, so we need to be a little careful on some of these friends because uh, you're fundamentally gifting Dubai uh, your startup ecosystem in crypto Web
0: three. No, absolutely um, um, sharp observations. I mean, it's hard to say a comment like that to you without worrying about. (laughs) Being condescending, but you know, uh, obviously, um, very interesting observations. Now, you know, I I want to talk more about the exodus to Dubai, as it were. It's something that we've also been uh, watching quite closely. But first, let's talk about the public infrastructure bit. I think it's very interesting. UPI, I think it's now by now well known what is the kind of um, incredible adoption and success it has had and the kind of change it is driving on the ground. Um, What are the ones that you're most excited about that are in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. The account aggregator ecosystem, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of related, Mm -hmm. uh, is also beginning to take off. I mean, I think we're seeing the same trends as we saw in the early stages of UPI. But can we talk about the, uh, you know, OCEN and OCDN? What are the ones that you are most excited about? What are the ones that you think has the most potential for disruption and therefore will become opportunities for a new crop of startups. Yeah. Um,
1: So you mentioned uh, OCEN, Open Credit Enabled Network. Linked to that is the account aggregator framework, right? What it means is, uh, for example, um, this can lead to, imagine an urban co, or imagine uh, Uber, for example. They can look at the data that they have uh, and they can actually partner with someone or other startup can come and create like an income smoothening uh, kind of uh, product. It says that, uh, yes, you know, you have salary jumps and it's lumpy, uh, no doubt about that. But th- we can actually create an income smoothening product by which uh, the salary is evened out and the extra months get, you know, uh, kind of uh, harvest kind of placed on the side and then whatever is low is like the drop is covered. Uh, so you can actually Theoretically, today create a product. Uh, another example is that a Swiggy, for example, which is working with a particular restaurant, could actually allow the restaurant to kind of access credit, basis the data that I have with Swiggy, and all of this doesn't need, you know, uh, really too much permission. It's all API calls to each other. So these kind of uh, it's very powerful. Um, the other related one uh, is uh, Beacon, uh, which is sort of the underlying framework and ONDC, Open Network Digital Commerce. So that could make it very easy for, I mean, easy, I'm saying that, but it will need a fair bit of work. Uh, That could make it possible for a front-end to come up, which the customer can just input what they want to the front-end. That front-end app can actually have back-end stores, which actually bid for it. And then you can actually send it through, again, different logistics providers could bid for it. And reach the consumer. So the consumer is buying from X, but he's actually getting serviced by, let's say, if he's buying a pharmaceutical product, 1MG. And he doesn't even know it's coming from 1MG. And 1MG is routing it through Dunzo. So sort of this combination of uh, kind of API-led commerce, what it would bring, sounds very interesting.
0: As part of the public infrastructure and public digital infrastructure, I think there have also been big success stories in the government, right? The gem marketplace uh, yeah, is an example. That also has a massive uh, growth curve. You know, are these truly being used? I mean, is there a lot of uptake of these uh, these platforms?
1: Yeah. So uh, not everything is used. Say, for example, the Aadhaar API calls us. I mean, because that is underlying almost everything. Uh, UPI, for example, is clearly a great one. I think early days for the the others really to get mainstreamed, I'm very hopeful about O C E N because India is a credit start country, uh, yeah. O C E N and A, so I think that'll be the next one to take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see about the health one, UHI, that could be very powerful as well.
0: To come to the crypto side of things very quickly before we move on to the, uh, to the report. Uh, I think a lot of very concerning reports about crypto founders, crypto startups, uh, including, uh, you know, a marquee company like Polygon, which is a big global success story, um, moving to Dubai uh, for aforementioned reasons. Um, One thing that startups have told us is that, look, the government has classified cryptocurrencies as digital assets. But in doing so, what they've ended up doing is regulating everything else that is also a digital asset, um, including NFTs that, you know, uh, in use cases that have nothing whatsoever to uh, do with currency or currency related applications. NFTs um, are, of course, non-fungible tokens and used a lot in um, in the art world and in other applications, but not typically as uh, as currency. Is that what you're hearing in Dubai? Of course, there is also a tax element which makes that whole debate a little bit more um, textured than, uh, so it's not a linear one, there is a tax element, there is some support that Uh, The UAE is giving, uh, and I think the government of Dubai is giving some of these startups in terms of infrastructure, space, some amount of funding and so on and so forth. Um, What's your prognosis? Is this bad news that in this very exciting um, Web3 space, uh, we've had some early successes like Polygon and we are also equally rapidly sort of losing them?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I think you raise... Um, I think you've covered given a very good summary of uh, the the lay of the land, so to say. Um, There are two innovative companies, Polygon is one, Instadap is another. I'm sure there are more but these readily come to mind. Instadap is in the DeFi space. So um, and I think what we're really seeing with founders is uh, you covered a lot of them. I I don't think it's one thing. I think it's all of these things. The fact that it is a tax friendly zone uh, it is the fact that it's just two hours away from India. It's two yeah. and a half hours, right? Like, yeah. you know, and it's a it's a very easy to set up country. Uh, you know, it's very welcoming. Yeah. And over time, what happens? Is I think the most important factor is that other folks are there, right? After a point, it becomes like a snowball. Yeah. That A is there because B is there. It becomes so easy to talk. And the energy, apparently, folks who have gone to Dubai I among mean, the yeah. crypto Web three community is incredible, apparently. I so, see. and it's not just Indians. Remember, Dubai is a global crypto hub, yes. right? Everyone from Jordan to Turkey to Bulgaria—they uh, are happy to come to Dubai. So, Dubai is—it of course is a regional hub, but increasingly, I think they're leveraging crypto to kind of become like a global hub. And uh, very interesting.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you been to Dubai? Have you hung out with this this high energy bunch um, uh, recently? Do you have any color <laughs> to share?
1: No, no I don't. Ha- I haven't. I haven't ever been to Dubai. Actually, that's oh, something really? I need to correct. Yeah, yeah. Despite uh, you know, given where I come from, uh, yeah. uh yeah. is uh, I know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, but I haven't been there, and there's something I'm looking to correct uh, in the in 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 the near future. But as yeah. of now, no. Yeah.
0: yeah. You should. You should. Uh, you know. You should uh, do a an excerpt to your report which is a ground report from the dubai crypto scene field you know, notes uh, field yeah,
1: field notes. Notes. <laughs> notes yeah has to do
0: that yeah <laughs> Notes from Dubai. Yeah. Uh, You know, Sajid, I'm curious, since we talked about this, where do you stand on the whole, I mean, I remember a little while ago, there was this whole heated debate about startup flipping. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the idea that, you know, our IP is leaving the country or, uh, you know, I find it to be a complex one. Uh, mm-hmm. Where do you stand on it? Like, you know, because a SaaS startup like mm-hmm. Postman mm-hmm. Uh, say moving to Silicon Valley like does it mm-hmm. really I mean what is the difference like what is an Indian company what is a, an American company if you have employees here I mean if you share if your investors are American you know yeah. um, if if 60% of your firm is owned by North American investors mm-hmm. are you anyway an Indian company even if your mm-hmm. your founders are a resident here or you know China, where do you stand on this whole um, yeah. are there Political and geographic boundaries, how relevant are they to startups that are uh, aiming to serve a global audience? Yeah,
1: it's a a great question. And uh, it is, of course, a loaded question, but uh, there are lots of nuance here. Let me articulate, I think, my view. In some senses, it is also Bloom's view, because I do uh, have a voice there. So you can't separate the two. But I think it is a perspective of an Indian fund. So Bloom is an Indian fund. Uh, and the nature of uh, the Indian fund, this thing I won't go too much into jargon is that because we don't, we are domiciled in India, and we're not like a, like one of those Mauritius funds, mm-hmm. uh, we are mandated to invest a certain amount of our corpus in non Indian companies. So we have limits, 25% is, is what it is, and it is uh, semi mandated, we do honor it. So in a way for us, if more and more companies are domiciled abroad, are Delaware C Corps, so to say. It actually makes it difficult for us because we only have a certain amount of our corpus which we can allocate to that. Even follow on checks have to come from that corpus. So if 25% is the limit, if you raise like 200 million, then 50 million is what we can allocate to that.
0: Sorry, let me make sure I understand this correctly, uh, Sajid. So 25% of your corpus, you're mandated to invest in a non Indian company. No. Up to twenty five percent of our corpus can be invested. We don't. We are not
1: mandated to invest even one dollar. But God. the limit on how much you can deploy. So it's ah. uh, yeah. So we can't like go up to fifty percent of our fund. I don't think that's so particular about 25, 26 percent, but you know that's understandable. But they do, they do look askance if, uh, if it's like sizable uh, one beyond 25
0: percent. So when a Bangalore startup moves to Silicon Valley, yeah. that suddenly changes the classification for you. It suddenly becomes part of your 25 percent cap. Okay,
1: that said, I should clarify: if if we have invested in a company which was Bangalore domiciled, then that is counted as part of the 75. Okay so that doesn't get converted into the 25 that still gets converted so the interesting thing is for example yesterday i met a company um they are in a in a, in a travel tech space because they've been through a particular accelerator now i won't give the name of the accelerator but you yeah. can guess it's uh, so it's y so, combinator
0: but right. gone you have sure.
1: So uh, they... Uh, I, mean, I don't
0: know. You asked me to guess. I'm guessing you don't have to say right or wrong, no, but no. yeah.
1: Yeah. So they were, uh, uh, they, they of course were, uh, you know, uh, a delivery corp. And uh, uh, so what what it means is that if we have to invest in that company, then we necessarily have to invest via this 25% rule. We have to take permission, etc. Of course, we, we will do it for the right company. But I feel that... Um, for startups serving India, uh, I feel it is a little unfair to have them be domiciled abroad because it's easier for the first seed investor to kind of, uh, uh, kind of uh, you know invest there and feel comfortable. We feel that Indian laws, Indian judiciary are on par with the best in the world. Of course, maybe a little slower, and all of that we can get into the nuances there, uh, and we push. In fact, we have made a reverse flip happen. We have got a tech company to reverse flip into India because we said like, why do you need to be headquartered in Singapore or uh, like this thing? It just doesn't make sense. But that said, um, we fully understand a situation where there's a company which has got five, six engineers in India, starts, but all the customers are abroad and eventually the founders also relocate there. Uh, if 95% of your revenue, which is true with Fresh Test, for example, is, uh, is, is, is coming from you know, USA or the West, and uh, you also have a large team there. Um, I think it's fine in, in that context. Uh, but for the large, vast majority, I don't think it makes sense. I think it makes sense to be actually domiciled in India. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah,
0: Yeah, I think it could also be argued that um, this is true for all of our very, very large IT companies. I mean, most of them um, still derive 80-odd percent of the revenue just from North America. But they can't absolutely. be quoted yeah. here. They pay taxes yeah. here. You yeah, know, absolutely. Uh, all of that.
1: That said, I think it's good for uh, startups to push the envelope. Uh, and I think in many senses, these signals also uh, kind of feed into uh, the radar of the government, of the regulators. And I think these are good early warning signs if your best startups are actually preferring that. You do need to kind of ask them what is it that is making you select that. What is it that we need to do here? And uh, I think uh, in that sense, I do appreciate startups pushing the envelope. Uh, you know, yeah. and uh, but what what sometimes uh, this needless domiciling is what actually gets my goat a little bit. That just because you're comfortable with that, I mean, why do you need to be? But incidentally, Tiger, for example, has never pushed that. Like Tiger, uh, the biggest investor in India. They're comfortable with coming in, whatever it is. And they never push you to flip. uh, In fact, even though sometimes they're that So so you've got to handle that. It is sometimes case to case that some investors would do it, but uh, yeah.
0: I think it's fair to say that most large investors I mean I haven't heard uh say SoftBank uh, forcing anybody to relocate. I think the the all the big ones seem to be quite comfortable working yeah. with the companies that are here operating yeah. here um and all of yeah. that, right? I think with accelerators indeed one has heard that uh, yeah. this tend uh, tends to happen. Um but you know, just to quickly close the loop on this one. I think to me, one of the concerning things is that this Dubai exodus we are talking about Mm -hmm. is actually the second wave. I mean, the first wave and when, uh, you know, Sanjeev Bhikshandani wrote about it and when, you know, when the first debate broke out was actually when, um, I mean, he was making a different point, but at that uh, in that era, we saw a number of SaaS startups, mm-hmm. uh, especially from uh, South India. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, moving to the US, right? Yeah. Like we saw several uh, founders uh, moving to Silicon Valley, and you know, they all said indeed that their customer base was there, the engineering pool they were interested in was already there, and um, you know, so on and so forth. So this is actually the second wave, yeah. and and this is now you know persisted for long enough that I think somebody needs to. Um, you know, uh, in the government or at the policy level really needs to take a very serious look. I think the government, uh, you know, we hear them make all the right noises about being supportive of startups and so on. And indeed, uh, sometimes these are difficult questions. I mean, mm-hmm. your tax structures are what they are. Um, and, you know, you're not going to have to... But. I think I I fully agree with you when you say that um, it's good that this debate is on and then, you know, somebody should um, be looking at these things more closely and say, if Dubai can do this, you know, what is it that we can do to perhaps attract and and become some sort of a... Do you see any hope in that kind of a thing? I mean, um, could India, realistically, Bangalore, of course, is now a big startup sub. We as a country now get a ton of um, funding um, as as we saw in 2021. Um, Is there... Do you have any hope that we could develop a startup ecosystem that attracts um, founders from other countries to come and set up shop here?
1: Um, so early signs that Bangalore could be a regional hub, maybe one day global, are there. For example, we met a Russian company. As in, Now, I don't know what's happened since then, but there was a Russian edtech company, founders, and they came to India specifically because this is the Indian market is big. Russia is just 140, 130 million people. India is like ten times that, and of course, not all of India is as uh, uh, economically uh, sound. But yeah, um, so early signs are there, Shrutijit. Uh, Bangalore uh, is actually uh, very attractive as a as a place to be for funding. So, but it hasn't been as pronounced uh, as, for example, for Dubai, it has been because Dubai has no local uh, kind of entrepreneurial base; it's all uh, kind of an expat thing. So similarly for Singapore, so it's not definitely on par with that. But you do meet the occasional uh, non-Indian founder there. And this uh, Russian EdTech founders were the most pronounced one that I noticed. Um, Long way to go, to be honest, uh, because uh, India is a complex market. Even for us, we had to pass on those founders. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think it'll take some time. And eventually, they're all there because they want to access capital. So Silicon Valley's clear strength is that the venture investors are there. And they don't care where you're from. Really, of course, it helps if you're uh, there and if they can get a, understand this more easily. But uh, they're happy to kind of invest in an Indian company, they're happy to invest in a Chinese company, even Africa these days, Europe for sure. So I think uh, until capital from India, from Indian investors, starts getting allocated, we don't see a big rush.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. We have now spoken about everything else except your report. So uh, <laughs> we, will, we will now get a little bit into it. I yeah. found the Van framework very interesting. Yeah. Uh, do you want to run our listeners through it? Um, yeah, yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So
1: the Van trifecta, as we call it, uh, is actually uh, a conversation that I was having with uh, Tony Wang, uh, who is a co-founder of Agora. Agora is a kind of a API infrastructure for video calls that a lot of tech companies use and they're chatting about this. And he said China took off and he said there was a convergence of three trends. Uh, He said, uh, bandwidth crashed. He said, uh, smartphones became cheap enough to uh, fit into every pocket. Uh, And uh, finally, he said, uh, WeChat and Alibaba uh, helped create this uh, very friction-free payment systems, right? QR code So He said, when those three happened, uh, he said, uh, the Chinese internet economy took off. The Chinese internet economy is... Humongous, right? In comparison to India, yeah. so a one fourth of China's retail is actually e-commerce. In India, it's barely six percent, right? One fourth. U.S. is half of China's, twelve percent. So I think uh, the missing one, I think, Vantrafector, to be honest, is also per capita income, which in India is not at China's. So China took off. They say about four thousand dollars. And This number keeps getting cited as the magic number at which basically, do with discretionary income. At that point, you're certain discretionary income and that there's a willingness to spend on uh, digital goods and services.
0: So, uh, let, let me stop you there because can you unpack that a little bit? You said yeah. there is this no- magic number that gets quoted. So, $4,000 of per capita income, the theory goes, yeah. is yeah. when that's the inflection point at which yeah. the internet economy. Is- Absolutely.
1: and. Uh, and when uh, did
0: China get there? Where are we now? When can we yeah.
1: I don't have the exact date, but I think it was 2013-15 when China took off. There, China is around eleven thousand dollars right now, India is two thousand dollars, so gone down slightly. And in fact, parts of China like Shanghai uh, uh, are at twenty-twenty five thousand dollars. So wow. though, and it's a large, large city, Shanghai is twenty-six million, and mm. the entire city has twenty thousand dollars per capita income, which means there are people earning forty-fifty thousand dollars more. Yes. So I think India, i have seen these uh, charts. We didn't put them out. But you've actually seen these charts. India is like some seven or eight years uh, where India is at 6%. E-commerce has 6% of retail. China was there 10 years back. So 10, 11 years back. So we've seen these charts, Seen we can construct these charts saying how far back is India versus China? So India is actually in some senses anywhere from 5 to 10 years behind China. Behind. And I think the real issue for us is, I think, our per capita income. Yeah. And I haven't seen that dramatically grow. And that is something that, uh, I mean, I don't, I think there are structural issues. And yeah. I think while Van traffic, what it's done is, is ensured that India One, which is sort of the top 100 million, uh, who are at nine to 10000 $11,000 per capita income, they've taken off. So bank perfecta means if you have that like four thousand dollar plus, then you know uh, it creates the ground conditions for takeoff to happen, and it's happened really at that level. It doesn't happen all across India, but. Right. That- so that is sort of van trifecta. Long answer
0: to a question. but I Yeah, no, no. Wonderful, wonderful. You know, the, the part about income, as I read through your report and, and as we neared the end of it, one mm-hmm. thing that struck me is indeed that, um, or one thing that was to my mind at least, conspicuous by its absence, was a longer discussion on per capita income and its growth. I yeah. think you deal with it minimally. In I mean, I certainly remember one slide in which you deal with it, but you don't, delve into it too much was yeah. that a conscious decision did you not want to get into the socio-economic discussion of the likelihood of India's growth and so on and so forth
1: I don't have the tools shrutajit well I've studied undergrad economics but uh, I totally don't have the tools that a uh, kind of a macroeconomist or someone has and uh, I also didn't want to do any casual anecdotal chat Sure. Data is very hard to come by, to be very honest, in the last two, three years. Mm. Uh, so that makes it hard. Um, I do feel that there's one uh, particular page, where I talk about uh, the exit, uh, you know, and uh, exams, and English, as uh, you know, uh, the three axes of advancement in India, it's page 25, for the listeners. So uh, fundamentally, I feel that there are powerful structural forces, or you can use the word forcing functions, Mm -hmm. which uh, challenge uh, a quick growth of uh, Indian per capita income. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think fundamentally, the path that we've taken of uh, being service-led, as opposed to manufacturing, and one could argue, why is uh, India not manufacturing? Why didn't manufacturing take off? Why is it even taking off in Bangladesh? Now now that comes down to many other factors. So it's a very complex set of many interlinked factors. Uh, But fundamentally, what it means is that India is an economy in which the advancement through the ranks is slowed. And it's slowed by like there are specific gatekeepers, you could say, which regulate the flow into the creamy layer. And uh, English is one of those uh, gatekeepers. Uh, it levies a cultural and economic tax. Tax. Yeah. Uh, I remember this conversation. with there was a guy who was training me, and he was. I was paying him like 600-700 rupees per session, and he said, "He, if I knew English, I can charge two thousand rupees for it in Lodi yeah. Gardens. You know, I could be training someone." And he was absolutely right. And English creates that uh, the perception, whatever you call it.
0: For those of you who are interested in uh, reading this report, it's available at bit.ly slash IndusValley2022, all small caps in one word. Um, what I like about the report, I should I should say, Sajit, is that, um, you know, it is uh, the color and the commentary and the context that you add to it. Um, I think, you know, that adds a lot of uh, texture and feel um, because I think, you know, a lot of, and, and it's true for many things that we discuss about India, that the numbers capture only part of the story. Uh, the numbers are of course important, but I think the, the texture, the context, I mean, you talked about the, uh, the government jobs and I, I think the, the color you added to it, uh, talking about this railway person, um, uh, um, you know, who makes um, 32 odd thousand rupees and is very happy with his life and that Quora answer. Uh, yeah. This kind of thing is uh, is just wonderful, you know. And, and therefore, uh, are these anecdotes that you that you collected um, over the course of the year or uh, how did they all come about? Yeah.
1: No, thank you for that. Very kind of you. Um, yeah, these are anecdotes I think I keep collecting. And I think the joke is that uh, I don't collect art, but I collect these... Uh,
0: Twitter screenshots. Yeah, Twitter
1: screenshots. So these curiosities, and they all go into one uh, file called India in one tweet, India in one pic. And um, I think uh, there was actually a picture which we left out. It was a very interesting picture. And I initially started out with that. And I suddenly got to fitting that look. It probably took, it's like a more measured picture. But this was very interesting. And uh, I think Neha Dixit, a journalist that tweeted it, and... Uh, Twitch was very interesting. It's actually a kind of a wall uh, in uh, UP, somewhere in UP, rural India. And it actually says, uh, please don't do your business here. Like, uh, please uh, use Google Maps to locate a bathroom and <laughs> go there. So I thought it was utterly fascinating and I I love these contradictions that come through, right? Like, and I said like, wow, like, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, uh, ODF is still not solved for whatever you might say. And on the other hand, you're actually telling use Google Maps. So that's what happens. Uh, oh, we got slightly better, but in 2011, we had more smartphones and toilets. So, uh, So sort of is what I heard but uh, sort of this unique nation that we live in and shall love to bitch. but
0: yeah. (laughs) Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to pick up the thread we um, started with the Van trifecta, which, and, you know, it it leads quite linearly into the question of what is the real size of, what is the addressable market, as it were, right? Like for a lot of companies, um, for subscription businesses. uh, Could you run us through your, Um, estimations in terms of what is the size of the market with a certain kind of purchasing power, that whole, you know, India 1, India 2, India 3 framework, but at the very top, what does it look like? Yeah,
1: so I think uh, the real number, I think, is somewhere between 25 to 35, I think it's closer to 35 million households, which is three crore households, Mm -hmm. And typically, in the upper strata, you could take a number of three and a half for the household size. Mm -hmm. So effectively, you'll have to grow just over about 10 crore, which is 110 million uh, people in that. This is what I call India one, this is all people like us. And all of these people have discretionary income, which means they have like three, four, five lakhs at the end of the year to spend on, uh, and okay, you don't, maybe you don't spend it, wait till the end of the year to spend it, you're spending it through the month, you divide it by 12. So they have something like forty fifty thousand 50,000 rupees, discretionary income to spend on.
0: So after all of their fixed, like their rent, all the expenses, they have left with them around 50,000 rupees a month to spend. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got it. it. So that market is 110 million. And that is the market that all of the global startups are are aiming for the, your subscription startups, are after you're trying to sell almost anything. That's your yeah, your yeah. big market, as it?
1: Absolutely. If you, for example, whether it is Big Basket, whether it is uh, Uber or uh, Ola, uh, whether it is like, for example, Urban Co., they're largely serving this 100, 110, 115 million kind of uh, populace. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, this is corroborated by data points such as credit card ownership. So, 35 million people who own credit cards in India. That's it, 3.5 crore out of 140. Um, automobile penetration, when I mean, you actually look at the households where automobile penetration has happened, it comes like 32, 33 million. So, that's 3.3 crore households. So, it's all matches. Uh, Similar numbers, if you go by, for example, uh, people who travel abroad, it's less likely less than that. Mm -hmm. So um, it seems to me that about 10%, 10 to 12%, one-eighth of the country, or one-tenth, depending on what numbers you use, uh, is really the economic engine of the nation, really. And one could argue that there is even a more refined uh, uh, kind of segment, which I call India 1 Alpha. So these are the people mm. who buy these cultural products like Starbucks, like for example, or Netflix, yeah. or iPhones, etc. Uh, et right? Or consume right, all of right. these uh, like D2C brands. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So that's the you define it in the report as a top five percent of the hundred and ten million. Yes.
1: No, it's I would say about top one third of the I would say hundred and
0: ten million. So that's so about, about thirty million. Thirty million. Uh, about thirty million. Exactly. Uh, thirty million.
1: Got so it. they account for, like, I would say, about a quarter of India's GDP. Mm-hmm. So, uh, about about six hundred. I mean, I estimated this. It's hard to kind of really come up with thing, but sure. this this tiny population accounts for, I would say, about uh, uh, about three and a half four percent. Account for, I would say, about a quarter of India's GDP. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a very unequal country, and India one is really what everybody's after. So, uh, India One is what the Dunzo is after. India One is anyone who starts up is fundamentally going after India One. Now, the point, I think, is I'm not saying that's the end of the market, but really that is the most easily addressable market. But over the last three, four years, thanks to the Wang trifecta emerging in India, uh, you know, because India has also had the GEO and Airtel war, uh, which fundamentally has helped, uh, another 100, 150 million people come into the internet. And this is what I call India 2. Uh, and uh, they have about a third or fourth of the per capita income of uh, India 1. And uh, they are uh, typically not English speakers. They're typically more comfortable with the local language, but they kind of recognize English. So uh, they've started kind of uh, using, uh, but they're, I would say, buyers, but they are users of the product.
0: Uh, just to put that in perspective in terms of the monthly discretionary spends, we are talking about somebody with fifteen to 20,000 rupees of discretionary income per month?
1: It could even be less because uh, with $3,000 uh, per capita income, and my view is that uh, in the last year, India too has uh, suffered a little bit. So, uh, because a lot of it's India too has shrunk a
0: little bit. Yeah, it's
1: yeah. yeah. my view. And I feel uh, when you're earning around uh, like 3,000 for 2 lakhs, you may not have so much uh, discretionary income. I think discretionary income there might be very little, might be in single digit uh, thousands. Like, you know, and uh, uh, this is uh, someone who's uh, just about got their grips. They're like the lower middle class effectively, uh, you know, and uh, they're just struggling to stay afloat. Um, Their big investments are, for example, the affordable private schools, which have kind of emerged as products for them. So there's a startup called uh, Lead School, which uh, is uh, strongly squarely in this space. YouTube is really seeing its growth come from them. And uh, like Flipkart and all of the others are fundamentally trying to expand into this constituency, Mm. and sort of trying to grab as much of this landmass as possible. But it's challenging, Uh, because you probably should stop me because uh, if I I can talk about the surahs, it's an area of unending fascination for me. So one example I'll give you and I'll stop there is uh, India 1 has certain languages of design. So for example, we find it easy to click on rectangular colored objects on a flat screen and buy a device. But for India 2, that is not the way they used to buying they're used to transacting right so uh which is why I think Misho did very well early on because you could theoretically on WhatsApp check and come on, you know you could buy so it's it's a very different world and you can't come with the same rules of India one and try to, and hope to succeed in India too uh, like I said again I could go on for hours and probably take a pause here and
0: yeah no, but help me understand, how is it different to buy on Misho uh, compared with, and, and I was really going to come to Misho because I think the kind of uh, rapid growth they've had in, in tier two, tier three towns seems to have been really impressive. And, you know, okay. all the big boys have had to stand up and take note. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it that they do differently? And what is it that the players in this space, in terms of, user experience in terms of, uh, you know, the design language, what do they do differently? Yeah.
1: So Misho, uh, there's some nuance there. So Misho's success was on developing a certain workflow, UI flow for mm-hmm. India to to buy clothes. So they created this concept of resellers. Uh, it's just thing, it's being... Think of, you know, uh, yeah. it's like ammy on steroids, yeah, so to yeah. say, or Tupperware on steroids. Tupperware, so same yeah. concept. Same right. concept. Right. Except that they made it easy using WhatsApp and their app to get these resellers who are basically not sim- simple people, housewives, some of them, yeah. Yeah. to earn an extra bit of money by tying up with this one. And then they would share it in their WhatsApp group. And uh, and and then people who got there, their friends or whatever, would say, Hey, I want this. And this would come, Misha would then send it to these people.
0: uh, And the cash is just handed over. Cash is just handed
1: over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she would collect it, etc. This is a new UI and it did very well because the alternative was for this person to go on to Flipkart. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with Flipkart, it's all in English, etc. Then typically, I've also seen people from villages. Every village has one, two people who help everybody else buy. So on online. I've also seen that.
0: Yeah. It's the equivalent of uh, in our grandparents' time. Uh, I'm sure you've also encountered this. In every village, there would be some people who would write letters for those who couldn't write letters.
1: Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: The people who didn't have literacy. I mean, if your son was in the army, but the mother is illiterate, but like yeah, there would be a few folks in the in the yeah. village who would come and write the letters, uh, yeah. uh, you know, on their behalf.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm sure there is, but uh, yeah, it's still news to me. Yeah, but I can understand uh, why. Yeah. So now, of course, I think Misho has slowly it's pivoted from that because I think they've had a lot of people reach out directly, and I think they've decided to compete head-on with uh, Mintra and uh, you know Amazon, Flipkart themselves who do this. Yeah. So uh, Misho's actually moved out of that space, uh, and actually they're dropping the reseller thing. So that's a nuance, but uh, their big success was predicated on this new UI that they created. Right.
0: Very interesting. So uh, has there been any contestation of this framework? Have, have people either either in one direction or the other, have people said, no, 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 this, uh, you know, 110 million people is not right. That is not the elite market size. There is either much more or there is actually far fewer or broadly in your space, people agree with this uh, yeah. framework.
1: So the challenge is anyone who has to defeat this has to get better data. And uh, I'm happy to change. I've changed my views on many things, including English. I thought for a moment that uh, English uh, having more Hindi in an app would actually improve. But a lot of product managers, etc., have written to say that, hey, we've tried all this, Sajid, It doesn't work because Indians can side-read English quite well. Like, you know, nice. the issue, yeah, issues to do a lot with design. Like, you know, so I've changed my views. And uh, uh, the fact is, No one has been able to come up with any clear data which says actually it's bigger. And even if it's bigger, it's got to reflect in the sales, right? It's got to reflect. Entire e-commerce segment is about 50 billion large in India. So that's very tiny compared to a 900 or so billion uh, retail economy. Okay. So that's just 6% of that, like uh, less than 6%. Yeah. So uh, I would say that um, there is actually sometimes people say it's much smaller.
0: You know, uh, this skew of the socioeconomic pyramid, you see reflected in multiple uh, ways again, right? As you go into the layers, I saw this really interesting slide where you talk about how for Amazon, a lot of their sales come from a very small number of uh, their core yeah. core users. Absolutely,
1: yeah. So, yeah, this is a finding that uh, Kunal Shah, uh, yeah. internet cat guy and like generally interesting guy on Twitter kind of circulated and uh, he in fact uh, one of the smartest guys he's given up on this all india to business and he said i will serve india 1a like you know uh, uh, people and actually it's very smart and it's paid off because fundamentally i feel that india is a country where the elites would be very happy to pay it's just that they need better service and better products and suddenly you have someone who's like really catering to that etc so um Mm -hmm. If anything, that's what I'm saying. If anything, there have been more cases of people telling me that I've actually overestimated than underestimated. The hope is that uh, more and more India two will start becoming consumers slowly. Hmm. And um, I do think there are signs of that. I haven't had too many other examples of uh, India 3 focused startups. But I think I would say if the big India 3 startup has to be something which either helps them escape or earns, right? I can't think of anything. To that extent, escapism comes to YouTube, okay? And they'll all, once they get a smartphone, they'll probably, YouTube is the first thing. But beyond that, I think they just, we need to have things which help them earn, okay? So lending, earning, these are two things. Uh, I would have thought something like a chip fund or a digital chip fund could work in India 3, but I haven't seen any any stellar examples emerge. Hmm. So yeah, um, not uh, yeah, not too many examples unfortunately.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And you know, up until a few years ago, you would repeatedly see uh, Western companies entering India, and you would you would see their executives making these these repeated statements about the the big billion you know markets yeah. so on. Yeah. do you think by now uh thanks to the realism being injected by folks like you is it uh has it now become received wisdom that okay like temper your expectations you know the the market is actually uh, a tenth of that or you know um, yeah. has that become more accepted and understood <laughs> yeah,
1: so there's a saying, right? Never argue with a man whose salary depends on not listening not to you. Less. Yeah, so it's so when Reed Hastings came a few years back and did this 100 million subscribers from India, all of that, all of our eyes rolled. Yeah, so it's not just me. I remember a few years back, there was this uh, article by Economist writer called Stanley Pignell who wrote this article yep. called The Missing Middle Class. Yeah. And then someone told me that uh, this uh, recently, someone told me that one article delayed Essilor, I think, their uh, kind of uh, plans in India by six months, because this went around in Europe, and etc. So I don't know what, what the truth is there. But this is uh, not just me, it's being talked about every year or two, there'll be some report like this, etc. Hmm. But look, um, um, India is one of the big, large markets. What happens is in US, for example, you encounter Indians and they are the apex of corporate life there. And then uh, as you launch in India, you suddenly see a large offtake in the first one, two years because India one is lapping it up. You think, wow, like, you know, uh, it's just going to keep growing like that. Yeah, you and then suddenly it. it hits like, you know, and uh, sort of uh, this is something that... Uh, kind of was drilled into me when in five to 2005 to seven, I was in a magazine business, and a very smart person uh, had projected these magazine growth, like, you know, starting from 500,000, this thing, and going all the way to whatever, a million or whatever, he said, Look, that's not the way it works. It's a curve where it starts off very fast, and it'll just hit a plateau. So that is actually what's happened to a lot of these international guys. Uh, to unlock India, they'll have to think through very different ways. For example, Dreamloven is a company that is trying to unlock India 2. And Harsh Chain, uh, there was a speech he gave to a few of our founders and I attended that. He said, like, the way you have to construct the product in India 1, it's like the satirization product. He said, if it is India 1, you're giving them, let's like, say, a, like a thousand rupee product or something like that, or you're charging it at like like 500 rupees. He's saying India 2, you've got to price it at 10 rupees per day. And for, they will consume it for 30 days. He said, don't worry. You get 300 rupees. You will not get 500. But if you price it at 300 rupees for the, for the month, you'll get no one. Like, you know, or you'll get one person maybe. Mm-hmm. So I think the ways in which you have to think through uh, both in how you make it culturally acceptable, palatable, economically palatable. So I think over the next few years, there are signs of that already. Misho helped crack one element of it. So we'll start seeing more and more of that emerge. But uh, I don't think it will emerge very fast. So am I hopeful? I'm very hopeful. But am I hopeful that it will happen super fast? Mm, maybe not. We will know slower than normal media.
0: But none of this appears to have dampened uh, investor enthusiasm uh, yeah. as we saw in 2021. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sajid, were you surprised? And since you are this uh, you know, guru of moderation, uh, yeah. as it were, you know, when it comes to these things, were you surprised to see uh, uh, the kind of boom in incoming money that we saw in 2021?
1: Yeah, I was surprised. Uh, I was surprised. You know, um, whatever you say, like twenty twenty, the three months when lockdown started, uh, all of us, uh, you know, Sequoia came out this report, uh, like the Black Swan report, and all of that. All of us were really worried, but uh, the public markets uh, seemed to be drunk on something else, and uh, that that finally meant private markets also responded. Yeah, and I think uh, I've studied this. And I think there are two very powerful forces, and uh, this is basis a lot of reading, etc. And I always say that the most important person in Indian venture is a Fed governor. Yeah. So every VC I feel should do RT in the morning of the Fed governor. <laughs> this is what I've said. Like because if what the Fed does is just keep cutting interest rates and keep pumping money, yeah. right? And that has to find its way somewhere because you're not going to get any return in the West. Second powerful force.
0: Jay Powell is the mascot of the yeah, uh, in startup economy. Yeah,
1: <laughs> true. So <laughs> I'm going to get lynched for this, but it's uh, my breath Uh Yeah, the other one is to do with the way pension funds are incentivized. So uh, U.S., for example, is a country where the they're aging, and they've got to meet these in pension obligations. Yeah. But the challenge with the pension funds is how do you deploy the large like Texas firemen, Ontario teachers, scalpers, etc. Right. They've got to deploy it in assets and they find that the US Treasury bills are just like pittance, like probably like, you know, so they've started looking at peers who have done well in generating investment, like high investment, high alpha. And they find that having a significant share exposure to venture has been a big factor or uh, tech and because tech has been the big story, right, venture tech. And so what they've started doing is they've started moving dollars into venture. They may go from three to four percent, but three hundred million going from three to four percent is suddenly like three billion dollars, like coming into venture. And venture is like not even barely a trillion. Like you know, uh, all assets put together, is venture is barely a trillion. It's just very small as a portion of the global uh, this thing. Um, so when so much money comes, eventually it finds its way into India too. So India too, too, and that's what has happened really. And uh, now that you look at it in hindsight, it all makes sense. But at that time, we're like, wow, what's happening? Like, you know, And uh, there are also the China factor. China became unattractive in at least a couple of sectors. So suddenly attention came to India. So, so this has been the story uh, that the gravitational pull and power of venture seems to pay no heed to sometimes, uh, I won't say the ground reality, but at least some of the forcing functions of the Indian economy. And in some senses, I kind of understand the incentives, the logic, because finally you have to go where the investment returns are. And India has had great investment returns. Yeah. Exits are beginning to happen. Yeah. So I'm, on the whole, uh, like not like surprised, but not too shocked as to why it would happen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Sajid, it's been, uh, you know, really wonderful. But before we sign off, I just wanted to ask you. What drives you to do um, this kind of thing? What drives you to spend time writing, articulating? And you've said this before, and I I couldn't agree more, that not enough VCs or founders or even business executives in traditional sectors write and, you know, articulate what they do and and their world uh, Mm -hmm. for others. And it is a rare uh, trait. And, um, you know, I try to tell everybody I meet that you should write, you should write. Mm -hmm. Um, But what drives you? What motivates you? You to take time out from your day job to you know I mean yeah. of course it's related but it, it does take a lot of time right yeah
1: so I do I think have a hyphenated identity of a writer investor and there's a bunch of us a lot more in the public markets uh, but I do have a I think I have a hyphenated identity I was much a writer and as an investor and I actually feel that it helps both yeah, sides, both sides. Uh, I think primarily writing to me is the convenient medium for thinking aloud. So uh, I always find that thinking is hard. It's tremendously hard. Uh, The rare super bright guys can do it with chalk, like on mathematicians or whatever. When for me, my medium is writing and writing affords me uh, the space, the canvas, the thing to think aloud and uh, sort of longer, these epic kind of works, whether these long form essays, etc., Uh, They also get me audience, for example, this conversation, which will help me think on certain aspects. Uh, Sometimes it's a pulse check, it's a temperature check, but a lot of times you also get interesting feedback. And so that is why I write. I write to think. And uh, yeah, I think it's a part of my big part of my identity now.
0: Yeah. No, most wonderful, and and I hope more folks in your industry certainly. Uh, I mean, what a fascinating place it is today. You know, Um twenty twenty one indeed yeah. uh, was an incredible year. Uh, I mean, you're seeing unicorns that. You know, you didn't even hear about, you know, (laughs) you hear about a company one day and in four months, it's a unicorn. eh? Um, So crazy times, a lot of innovation, a lot of disruption going on. Um, um, quite Quite a time to be witnessing all of this happening in front of our eyes. I mean, I think our conversation became not so much about your report, but I think your report provided the framework to have a, a more broad-based conversation about what's going on in the uh, startup ecosystem. But thank you so much, Sajid, uh, for being with us today and spending the time. For listeners who are interested in uh, downloading the report, and I, I strongly encourage you uh, to do so, uh, bit.ly forward slash Valley 2022 all small letters. Sajid, thank you so much. It's been a very, very enlightening conversation.
1: Hey, Thanks, Sajid. Enjoyed it enormously. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity.
0: Yeah. Thank you. That's it from me for this episode. You've been listening to The Sketch. This episode was edited by Devina Sengupta. Deepti Ahuja is the producer of this show and our audio editor is Sanju Abraham. You can email us with your thoughts on the sketch at livemint.com. For more updates on this podcast, follow HT Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. To listen to more such Mint podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com. Goodbye and thanks for listening. This was a Mint production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast.